from buddy, somebody that's your senior pastor. Uh, let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. We finished Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Thessalonians. I can't even blame three services on that. Father, we thank you for this morning. And uh, Lord, all that you're doing. Lord, we thank you that we can be in an air-conditioned church with children's facilities, youth. So many things going on, Lord, you've blessed us. Lord, we are connected to the greater church. Lord, some who are suffering today. But God, we all want to hear your voice. Give us ears to hear. Let us sit at your feet, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So somewhere in my message, if I get a little amped up, if I start talking a little fast, it's not because I had espresso in between the services. It's because I'm talking about the most passionate thing in my mind in the entire Bible and something that's had the blood moving through my veins for 35 years, and that is a doctrine we call the rapture of the church. 1973, Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. He was a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, great Bible teacher. Hal had a gift for taking uh, eschatology, which is the study of last things in the Bible, things that would bring in the end of the age, and writing them in a way that ordinary people could understand. He went on to become, listen to this, the New York Times best-selling author of the 1970s. He sold 25, counted, 25 million books on prophecy. So uh, the rapture became pretty well known within the church, even though people didn't understand all about it. In 1998, Tim LaHaye wrote a book called Left Behind. It was only to be one singular book. It turned into 14 books. They only printed about 35,000 left behinds. It sold 8 million. It was fiction-based somewhat. USA Today said it was one of the great success stories, listen, in book publishing history. So the rapture not only was known among Christians, but now in the dominant society, people kind of understood the term. Today, the rapture is losing steam. A lot of people don't believe in it. People that did don't believe it anymore. It's being maligned. Some of it's our fault. Some hyper-aggressive people that believed in the rapture actually set dates. That's never a good thing. Uh, bad movies came out. That's not good. Uh, Christians did weird things. I remember kind of the early 80s. I was on the cusp of Hal Lindsey. By the way, here's a little aside. Uh, I used to lay in my bed with a transistor radio listening to sports talk when I was a teenager. And uh, one day I woke up 3 in the morning, and on that particular station... A man was being interviewed about a book he had just written about the end of the world. I didn't know it then, but it was Hal Lindsey. And I remember laying in my bed, I never read the Bible, thinking, oh my gosh, when I get up in the morning, I'm going to buy this book. And never remember that night until I got saved. It's amazing how many seeds have to be planted before somebody comes to faith. But uh, I was in the afterglow of Hal Lindsey and the prophecy rage. So I remember some of the weird things, like bumper stickers, if if driver disappears, look in the glove compartment, there's a Bible in there, and you'll find out how to get saved. Uh, some people, this is a true story, some people actually had a frame in their house that was glass, and it said, in case of rapture, break glass, and inside was a tract on how to become a Christian. So you put all those things together, it's kind of weird. So I want to look at the rapture for two weeks, this week and next week, and I want to answer four questions. Number one, what is it? Number two, who's a part of it? Number three, when is it? And number four, why does it matter? What is it? Who's a part of it? When is it? And why does it matter? I think we gave you some notes for you to kind of put in your Bible and take home. So how are we going to answer this question? Let me tell you what we're not going to do. We're not going to go to the internet. I've already done that. I spent four hours 
researching the rapture on the internet, not because I need to know about it, I want to see what you guys are thinking. I love you enough to go out and look at it. Let me tell you, it's a minefield out there. It's disastrous. I mean, uh, it's crazy. Uh, the web is, is an interesting place, right? I heard a comedian one time, he said he turned 40 years old, and somebody said, how's it feel turning 40? He said, well, I feel great, but I got this rash on my arm, and uh, so I went to the web, I typed in my symptoms, and it says, you either have a rash or cancer. And then he said, I had this cold that wouldn't go away. So I typed in my symptoms on WebMD, and it said, you either have a uh, cold or nose cancer. He said, they should just change the site to youhavecancer.com. And so many of us go out on the web, and we scare ourselves to death. Uh, the way we're going to unpack the rapture is to do what we always do, to let Scripture speak. Proper exegesis, to mine out of Scripture uh, the original tent of the author. What is the historical, grammatical uh, setting of what had transpired? So, we're in 1 Thessalonians. The creedal text of the rapture is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Let's look at it together. I love that sound. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. That's the Bible's way of talking about death. Lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, even so God will bring with him those who sleep or have died in Jesus. For we say to you by the word of the Lord, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Here's a critical verse, verse 18. Comfort one another with these words. What is the rapture? It's four things. The first thing I want to share with you about the rapture is that it is an event. It is a future event where God will step into human history like he did in Noah's flood, like he did with Jesus Christ, and there are a group of people who will meet the Lord in the air. It is an event. No one denies this event. What we argue about or deny is the timing of the event. But every Christian believes it's going to happen. You just read about it in 1 Thessalonians. Now, when people ask about the rapture uh, and this particular event, uh, they say, well, the word's not in Scripture. And by the way, that's always a silly argument, right? You know, so, so the second coming's not in Scripture, neither is the Trinity, the millennium, right? But look at the terminology here. It says, it says we who are alive will be caught away. Now, written in Greek, that translates many ways, snatched away. Uh, we get the word rapture from the Latin, rapturus. It, it's the root word for the word rape. It's violent. It's, it's, it's in an instant. It's snatching away a people group, pulled, caught up is the idea. Um, is the rapture anywhere else in Scripture? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Behold, I tell you a mystery. A mystery is not a secret. It is something that has always been there, but more light is now shed on it. Paul said, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. When? In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. Paul didn't know about nanotechnology, but that's what we're looking at here. As fast as light can hit a pupil, what will happen? We shall be changed. When? At the last trumpet, just like we read in Thessalonians. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible 
and we shall be changed. Did Jesus ever talk about the rapture? Yes, he did. In John chapter 14, he said to his disciples, let your hearts not be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Why? That if I go and prepare a place, I will come again. Jesus promised he would come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you will be with me. Now, it's interesting to note, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. And in the Synoptic Gospels, we get the Olivet Discourse, right? The disciples say, Lord, what will be the sign of your coming? The end of the age, Matthew 24. He gives them the signs. And what you need to understand is Matthew was written to the Jew, Mark and Luke, to Greeks and Romans, to understand the Son of God, John, is the gospel to the church. No genealogies, no prophecies, seven I am statements declaring that he's the son of God, seven miracles, and the only thing we get about the end times is I go to prepare a place for you, and it's a word of comfort. Don't be anxious about this. I'm preparing a place for you. So this is an event that will take place foretold by Jesus himself. There will be a catching away of a particular people group that will happen one time in history. The second thing we need to know, it's the very next thing on God's calendar. Some of you are thinking, I didn't know that God had a calendar. Well, he does. And the reason you didn't think God had a calendar is because we live in a world where we've been told we're the product of evolution. That somehow we got here by luck and chance, and that natural selection was the blind watchmaker. Therefore, we had no purpose for being here. There's no purpose for our future except to eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, for tomorrow we die. One day your candle's going to go out. Poof, you'll be gone. So live it up now. And uh, that's an idea the pagans have had for a long, long time. They looked at life as the circle of life going around the hub of death or what I call Lion King theology. Remember that, the circle of life? That the zebra eats the grass, the lion eats the zebra, and it's the circle of life. That's wonderful for animals, but not for humans. The Jews had a different idea. They looked at time, though it was linear, that it was moving somewhere. In Leviticus 23, God lays out his calendar by giving feasts to Israel. He said, these are my feasts. They are holy convocations. They are set times, appointed times. God said, you could celebrate other days, but these are mine. Why? Because they looked back at all God had done, showing his faithfulness, and prophetically they were looking forward to one day being fulfilled in what he would do through the ages. 19th century Rabbi Emin Hirsch states, the catechism of the Jew consists of his calendar. On the pinions of time which bear us through life, God has inscribed the internal words of his soul-inspiring doctrine, making days and weeks, months and years, the heralds to proclaim his truth. And the first herald was the Sabbath. God said, here's one day in seven to rest. Here's a lazy day. Do no work in it. Why? So you can remember that I created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, and there would be a future rest. I believe fulfilled in Jesus when he said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's our Sabbath. We no longer keep Saturday. We don't even keep Sunday. We have our rest in Jesus Christ. There were four spring feasts. The first and the greatest was Passover. It began the Jews' religious calendar. They looked back to their freedom from Egypt. They came out of a superpower where they were enslaved. 
into a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, the picture on the screen will show you a piece of matzah and um, a cup there. And those are both symbols of what the Passover meant. The matzah was the unleavened bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was tied to Passover to remind them with the haste they left Israel. They didn't have time for the leaven to rise in their bread. The center point of the feast, if you look at Exodus 12, was the lamb. The lamb was to be without spot, without blemish. It came from their very households. They had probably raised that lamb. And most of you know they slayed that lamb in the first Passover, put it over the doors, and the angel of death passed over. And so this lamb was slain every year, uh, one for a household. Erdenshime tells us maybe 250,000 lambs slain every Passover in Jerusalem. The whole idea was the lamb had to be without spot, without blemish. Now, uh, Jesus was the fulfillment of this feast. And John the Baptist really answers it when he says, Behold the Lamb of God. He knew exactly what he was talking about. Remember Isaac said to his father Abraham at the sacrifice, Here's the altar, here's the wood, where is the Lamb? John the Baptist said, There's the Lamb, the one who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' entire scourging, his trial, the Via Dolorosa, all designed to show us he was the spotless Son of God, the spotless Lamb. The centurion said, this man has done nothing wrong. Judas said, I betrayed innocent blood. Pilate washed his hands. I find no fault in this man. When Jesus said it was finished, he was saying this was the final Passover that ever existed. He was the completion of the feast. Peter said, you were not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or blemish. And in Revelation, when John looks at the scroll and there's none worthy to open its seals, he said, behold, I look, and he saw Jesus as though a lamb had been slain. Passover was fulfilled. The very next feast was first fruits. A priest would take a long sheaf of wheat and he would wave it before the people. And he was dedicating the harvest unto God, that God would bring in a bounty Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man shall come the resurrection of the dead. So if you go to Israel and you go in the empty tomb or when you celebrate Easter and we say, yes, Jesus rose from the dead, isn't that wonderful? Remember this, he's a prototype. One day you will be united with your body and you will be resurrected and you will be like Jesus. What a great promise. 50 days after Passover came Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. In Luke chapter 2, it was fulfilled when Acts said the day of Pentecost had fully come. Luke said this is the completion. The Holy Spirit falls in the church. The apostles speak in tongues. Fire sits upon their head. The presence of God. What's God doing? Just like in Genesis 1, he created the earth. He's creating the church. God breathed. Fill with the Spirit. The church age begins. There are three fall feasts, but before that there's a long, hot summer. That's what we're living in, guys. That's the time we're in. We're in the long, hot summer. The long, hot summer was the, the harvest. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples? He said, look at the fields. They're white for harvest. The problem's not the field. There's plenty of lost people out there. It's the workers that are few. And can I tell you guys, we are God's field. We're his workers. God's given everybody here a field to plow. I have a field, you have a field. 
And we need to be plowing that field. I mean, we don't exist as a church to feel good and sing some songs and preach messages. We are a thriving community. We're a vibrant community who we're plowing our field together and we all have a field. We all have to go into the world and preach the gospel. There's people to feed. There's people that need water. There's people that need the gospel. Jesus said the workers were few. For 2,000 years, we've been living in the church age, the age of grace, the long, hot summer. You might say, well, Pastor Bob, wait a second. Jesus said, behold, I come quickly. How come it's been 2,000 years? Well, you've got to remember, God's outside of time. He doesn't look at time like we do. Peter kind of clued us in when he said, a day with the Lord is like a 1,000 years, a 1,000 years, one day. Now, you ladies get that, right? You make this awesome dinner, and you tell your husband or the guys, hey, dinner's ready. And what do they always tell you? Uh, honey, just wait a second. There's one minute left in the football game. That's code for it's going to be about another hour, right? Yeah. So that's God's timing. Why? Peter said he's not willing that any should perish, but all come to eternal life. God has let 2,000 years go by, so the harvest will be bountiful. That leaves three fall feasts on God's calendar. The very next one is the rapture, the feast of, get this, trumpets. By the way, trumpets were used in the ancient world. They had no GPS. They had no form of communication, no Morse code. So trumpets were used to move people groups, armies or large groups like Moses in the wilderness. One day a trumpet's going to blow, and we read in Thessalonians we're going to be gathered. It's the great ingathering, Rosh Hashanah. And then Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That's when Jesus comes and the Jews look upon him and mourn for him as they would for an only son. That's when they'll say to him, when did you get those scars in your hands? And they'll say, when I was wounded in the house of my friends. The rapture is a real event. It's going to take place. So the very next thing on God's calendar, third thing you need to know is it's imminent. Imminent means it's near, it's next. Nothing has to be fulfilled. We don't need to see an antichrist, a third temple. We don't need to see a one world system. Uh, all these things we like reading about, none of these things need to happen. Uh, many of the letters Paul wrote, he had never visited the churches. But the church at Thessalonica he had started, Acts chapter 17. Paul founded this church. He was only there for about six weeks to two months. And uh, he must have taught them about the rapture. He must have taught them about Christ's coming. And then he got word that they were discouraged. They were anticipating the Lord coming. They were, you know, chapter 1 says they had turned from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven. So they were living in anticipation. But all of a sudden, some of their folks have died and they're thinking, oh my gosh, these people died. They're going to miss the rapture. So Paul writes a very pastoral letter of comfort saying, guys, no, that's not the way it's going to work. Those people that died, it's okay. Because when the rapture happens, they're going to rise first. We who are alive are going to meet them in the air, and everybody's going to be changed at once. Comfort one another with these words. It was a letter of comfort. In no way was Paul writing a letter to give us a blow-by-blow -blow account of the end times. And a systematic eschatology, which so many of us argue over. It was a very comforting word about people who die. And by the way, what happens when a Christian dies? Instant heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you die today, you will instantly be in heaven. 
The rapture is the day when you'll be reunited with your body. You'll get a glorious body. When Christians die, they go to be with the Lord. No prophecies need to be filled. Again, no one world system, Antichrist, no temple rebuilt. You might say, well, Pastor Bob, now I'm confused because in Matthew 24, Jesus said, here's the signs of my coming in the end of the age. There'll be wars and rumors of wars, famine, pestilence, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Why do we have all these signs? Now, here's where you got to stay with me and not lose me. Because what we're looking at, you ready for this? Don't lynch me. Is a tale of two comings. Now follow me on this. What was Jesus' biggest pushback while he was on earth? Even among his disciples. Class? Anybody? The idea that he was man. The idea that he was God and man. The idea that he wasn't a conquering king. Why? Because as the Jews read the Old Testament, they read the prophecies of Isaiah and some of the other prophets about a Messiah who would come and usher in a golden age and every man would sit under his vine and his fig tree. And all of a sudden, this carpenter from Nazareth, remember, could anything good come from Nazareth? Is preaching and teaching among the people and they couldn't marry up this Messiah with what they had seen in Scripture. They were looking for the overthrow of the Roman government. Lord, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? The scriptures they failed to read is that he would be meek and lowly, no place to rest his head, that he would be unlearned. They failed to read Isaiah 53. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Zechariah, he would enter Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. Psalm said, none of his bones would be broken. He would cry out to his, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they never read Daniel who said the Messiah would be cut off, violently killed, but not for himself. And the point I'm trying to make this morning is, if you look at the Old Testament, there's no way you could put all the Messianic scriptures together and get one coming of Christ. And we have no problem with that. You and I now understand he had to come once to die and he's coming once again. No one argues that. What I want to argue is, as we look at the second coming, is that a tale of two comings? Because i got to tell you, in my mind, there's no way to take all the scriptures and put them in the one second coming. Jesus said his coming would be like the days of Noah. The days of Noah were characterized by eating, drinking, and giving in the marriage. In other words, business as usual, a time of prosperity. No one thought it was going to rain. The last thing they thought was coming was judgment. For a hundred years, Noah builds an ark, and they laugh at him. It had never rained. There was no water. Why would you build an ark? How could that be true? And Jesus say, if those days were not shortened, no flesh would survive. It's virtually impossible. He can't come as a thief in the night, and he can't come at a time where people are hiding in the rocks for fear of what's coming upon the earth. It just can't happen. And I think Paul unlocks this mystery here and says, no, he comes once for his church, he comes again with his church. It's a tale of two comings. Now, many of you are going to go home, you're going to type in the rapture. The first person that comes up all the time is John Darby. People kind of demean John Darby, say he invented the internet, uh, not the internet, he invented the rapture, it never existed with the early church fathers. Uh, it's a shame because the guy was brilliant, he spoke five languages, a wonderful minister of the gospel. What he did was systematize it, popularize it, and clarify it, much like Hal Lindsey. 
It's kind of like Martin Luther. Martin Luther didn't invent salvation by grace. He just brought back something that had gone awry. Now again, there's an argument the early church fathers didn't believe in the rapture. Uh, Thiesman, who was a wonderful church historian, said the early church fathers not only held the premillennial view of Christ's coming, the imminency, uh, but regarded his coming as intimate, the Lord had for him to come in their day, not only so, but they also taught his personal return as being immediate. Only the Alexandrinians, church fathers, opposed this truth, but these fathers also rejected other fundamental doctrines. We may say, therefore, that the early church lived in anticipation, the constant expectation of their Lord, and hence they were not interested in the, pop, in the possibility of a tribulation period. Paul said, we who are alive and remain. He thought it could happen in his lifetime. He counted himself as those who thought it was a possibility. So when we look at early church fathers, even when we look, people say, well, Luther and Calvin didn't believe in it. Well, first of all, Luther was Catholic. After his conversion, he carried amillennial theology in. But even Luther said, I believe that all signs which are to precede the last days have already appeared. Let us not think of the coming of Christ um, is afar off. Let us look up with heads lifted high. Let us expect our Redeemer. He's coming with longing and cheerfulness. We should be looking one eye in the heavens, Luther said. It is the next event on God's calendar. It is imminent. And I guess my favorite part about the rapture is we call it the blessed hope. The blessed hope. Hope. In other words, that means it's something to look forward to. Now, we get into the second question. Who's a part of the rapture? And this is where we're going to kind of get to the fork in the road. Again, Paul was only with the Thessalonians for two months. Can you imagine um, a group of pagans coming to Christ and you had two months? What would you teach them? The virgin birth, the resurrection, would you take them through Genesis, creation, Paul thought enough about the second coming to teach them about that. And he hears later that they were serving God. They were turning from idols, serving God, and waiting for him from heaven. I was so moved by that verse that when we started this church 23 years ago, that's the chapter I started in. Because that's the church I wanted to pastor. I wanted to pastor a church where we were moving irreligious people to becoming fully devoted followers of Christ. We were getting our hands dirty and serving the poor, reaching the lost, all the while waiting for his son from heaven. I believe the church could live within the tension of the two. Paul believed it, and the Thessalonian church lived up to that. They lived with one eye on eternity. They served the poor, they fed people, they gave people water, they preached the gospel, and they had all had one eye on eternity. They understood the church was the restraining force in this world. It was the hope of the world. Now, in Thessalonians, look at chapter 5. He says, but concerning times and seasons, we're going to look at that next week. Brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly well that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Now watch this, personal pronouns. For when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, they shall not escape. But you, brethren, so we got a they and a you. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so this day should overtake you. 
You're sons of the light, sons of the day. We're not of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. Let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let uh, those of us who are the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but obtain salvation in Christ Jesus. That's an important verse. God did not appoint us to wrath. So when you ask who's in the rapture, it's the church from the day of Pentecost till the day of the Lord. How do I know? Because in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there are seven churches. They were literal. They represent the church age. Any churches in existence today all fall within those seven. And one of those churches, the church at Philadelphia, it's called the Faithful Church. Jesus said, because you have endured and persevered, he said, I will keep you from the hour, definite article, of trouble that is coming on the earth. There's one church that will escape the wrath that is coming on the earth. Now, this hour of trial, it's called the tribulation. The word's not in the Bible. It's one of the most documented times in Scripture. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble, a time, time and a half a time, the seven years of God's wrath, the tribulation. Revelation 6 through 13. Now some will say, well, anybody who believes in a rapture is an escapist. Why would God let one generation escape wrath when so many have lived through scourgings and burned at the stake and atrocities we see in China and the rest of the world today? Here's why. Everything we've seen for 2,000 years has been the wrath of man. What is about to come on the earth is the wrath of Almighty God. Jesus will tread out the winepress of the wrath of God and there will be a church that will be removed. Next week I'll take you through. Where will we go? The place he's prepared for us, the Bema Seat of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. If we're raptured at the end and we come right down, when's all that stuff take place? We'll get into that next time. We're looking at Rapture believers from Pentecost until the day of the Lord. Jude, verse 14, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. He comes the first time for his church. He comes the second time with his church. The 24 elders, almost everyone agrees, is the church around the throne of God. Twelve tribes of Israel, twelve apostles. The church never appears again in Revelation. In chapter 2 and 3, it says, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Later in Revelation, it says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. But no longer is the word church there. Now again, don't let the internet fool you. There's one site that says, oh, don't let anybody tell you the church isn't there. And they use the word saints for the church because they say saints are believers. That's true. But what you need to understand is once the church is gone in the book of Revelation, people still come to Christ. There's 144,000 Jews, Revelation chapter 7, who become evangelists. There are tribulation martyrs. Yes, they're called saints. They are not the church. We'll get into all that when we talk about when is the rapture. Again, it's an event. It has to happen. Is it before the tribulation? Is it the middle of the tribulation? Is it after the tribulation? Let me say this. If you take the Bible literally, if you read it in the literal, historical, grammatical fashion, you must believe in a rapture. You must believe in a pre-trib rapture. 
If you believe Israel still has a covenant with God, you must believe in a pre-trib rapture. If you've discarded Israel and you're willing to spiritualize Scripture, then you can put this event anywhere you want. Matthew 24, Jesus was writing to Jews. He was talking about their flight on the Sabbath. He was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, a very Jewish idea. We'll get into all that next week. Am I obsessed with Bible prophecy? No. I love it. I'm interested in it. It makes my heart beat. And the reason is, people that are obsessed get smug. I've seen this before. They get uh, arrogant. It leads to arguments. That's not what we want to be about. There's something about this, this anticipation of Christ's coming, that should move us. We should be sober-minded. You know, we should gird our loins is the idea. The reason why I'm so passionate about it is because the end of this world is really the beginning of life for you and me. That's when life's really going to begin. Maranatha was an early church word. It means come quickly, Lord Jesus. Why? Because we want to escape? Yeah. Yeah, I want to escape. I'm tired of standing by grave sites. I'm tired of hearing people have cancer. I'm tired of hospital wards. I'm tired of car crashes. And greed. And people that live on $2 a day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Do I want to change the world? Yes. But some days I go home and I say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The end of the world is the beginning of a new world. With resurrected bodies, with a beautiful Savior, there's 300 references to the coming of Christ in the New Testament to give us a future and a hope. I thought about how to end today, and I thought of an analogy, because I have three daughters. Anybody who has girls out there, you know how it works, right? When you're Daughters are about eight years old. You sit them down and say, hey, guys, one day you're going to get married. And they always respond, well, Dad, we don't want to get married. We want to stay with you and Mommy. We like it here. And for some of us, that's a fulfilled prophecy. It's coming true. (laughs) But you're like, no, 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 you know, you're going to get married. You're going to have your own family. And then they go through puberty, and they start liking boys. And then one day they come home and say, Dad, I found the guy, and I can't live without him. I want to get married. And if they're 40, you say yes, they're allowed. (laughs) This is the day we prayed for, we're happy for you. I want to read you Revelation 21. If you ever get discouraged, go to the back of the book. Revelation 21, 9, John saw seven angels who had seven bowls filled with seven last plagues. And he says, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great great high mountain, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven. It had the glory of God, and its light was precious like stone. He goes on and gives the description. And he says, but I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated. By the way, for those skeptics who say, oh, Genesis, you know, God said, let there be light, but there was no sun. Everybody's smart enough to know God doesn't need a sun to have light. He's the light. So in the new heavens, he's the sun. There's there's no darkness. People are silly. For the glory of God illuminated, the Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. The kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There's no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And there shall be by no means 
enter anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The greatest desire of the bride of Christ, and that's you and me, is to be with her husband. Paul said, I tell you a mystery. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. This is Christ in the church. This is where we belong. Right now we have the flesh, the world, the devil. Where we belong is with him. Where he dwells among us. And nothing will ever defile. No one will ever get molested. No one will ever get tortured. No one will ever get manipulated. Good won't be bad and bad won't be good. He will be the light of this glorious place. And that's what we're anticipating. Not November. Not November. The trumpet is our great anticipation. And he will make all things right. And he saved the best for last. And that's what we're holding on to. We've turned from idols to serve the true living God and to wait for his son from heaven. The Bible says scoffers will come in the last day say, where's the promise of his coming? All things consist as they have from the beginning when the fathers fell asleep. And any doctrine that tells us this Christ is being held in the heavens, uh, be leery of. Behold, I'm near, knocking on the very door. Open your hearts today and long for him. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the rapture. Lord, we thank you that we have scriptures to enlighten us. God, this event will take place. We pray that we're worthy to be part of that group. And Lord, while we wait, we serve. God, we look for doors only you can open. And if you close doors, God, we go another way. Lord, we want to be your church. We want to get our hands dirty. We want to worship you with all our hearts, all our minds, all our souls. And we look forward to the day where you call us home.